I woke up this morning with a cold. It's bad enough you have to deal with my accent, but when I have a cold with my accent, it becomes a little bit more difficult. On the order of, of messages, let me just make uh, one um, a comment. On the Messianic Kingdom, uh, it's not really going to be on the Messianic Kingdom, be more limited on Israel in the Messianic Kingdom. I have about a four or five hour study on the Messianic Kingdom, which I cover over a three or four day conference, but we're going to be very limited in focusing more on the Jewish people in the Messianic Kingdom. Now, we will not do this uh, after Sunday morning, but all of the three evening sessions will we'll have a um, question answer, answer session. So any questions that come to mind as I teach, just simply mark those down of an opportunity to deal with them uh, in, the, uh, in the question answer session after the study is over. Now, first study will be on the modern state of Israel in Bible prophecy. And I'm well known for my rabbi stories. In fact, more people remember my rabbi stories than anything I've taught. <laughs> but uh, and most of you have heard most of my rabbi stories. I don't to be repetitious, but here's one I, we see, I learned of more recently. It was a story of a Catholic priest and a rabbi that often get together. One day the Catholic priest chose to, the, to let the rabbi know how much more opportunity the priest has within Roman Catholicism because there is a hierarchy. Judaism doesn't have a hierarchy, so rabbi is just a rabbi. So to try to impress the rabbi, he approached the rabbi and said, Rabbi, I'm only a priest at the moment, but someday I could become a bishop. Thinking that would impress the rabbi, the rabbi simply shrugged his shoulder and said, that's nice. But the priest was disappointed, so he said, tries another tactic, rabbi can someday become an archbishop. And again, the rabbi shrugged his shoulders and says, that's nice. And now the uh, priest is getting very disappointed and says, rabbi could even someday become a cardinal. And again, the rabbi shrugged his shoulders and says, that's also nice. And now the priest is getting upset. <laughs> and he says, rabbi could someday become the pope himself. Again, the rabbi shrugged his shoulder. That's also nice. And now the rabbi, now the priest is angry. He says, what will it take for me to impress you? Do you want me to become God himself? The rabbi shrugged his shoulder and says, well, one of our boys made it. On the question of uh, modern state of Israel and Bible prophecy, there are five different perspectives. I'll deal with three of these in the introductory section of your outline. I'll deal with the fourth one later on in dealing with um, uh, at, the, at the bottom of the page. And then, uh, and then uh, fifthly will be the perspective I believe the Bible proposes. Now the first view became dominant in the fourth century the general term is replacement theology. And um, two men are, are responsible for this. The first one is Origenes or Origen, who introduced the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible. He applied that method to the Bible as a whole, even the historical elements. What's important for him was not the obvious meaning of the text, but more deeper spiritual allegorical meaning. Then came Augustine or Augustine who took those same principles 
can apply them specifically to Israel and to Bible prophecy and innovated a new millennial view called a millennialism, meaning no millennium. They do believe that the millennium is a spiritual millennium, but they point out the millennium is happening right now between the first and second coming. So we are already in the millennium. We are already in the messianic kingdom. And coming from my Jewish perspective, I would have to say, if this is the messianic kingdom, if this is the millennium, we must be in the slum section of the kingdom. <laughs> It's not anywhere as nice as the Bible describes it. And they point out, or try to point out, that the only place for believing in a kingdom is found in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 is in a highly symbolic book, and it's foolish to build a major doctrine on a passage of scripture in a highly symbolic book. But we shall see in our study Sunday morning that is not the basis for believing in a messianic kingdom. The messianic kingdom was always a key element in Judaism, and the book of Revelation is not part of the, um, Christian, uh, the Jewish Bible. But rather, we shall see more in detail on Sunday morning. Um, the basis is two things. Number one, the unfulfilled promises of the Jewish covenants. And secondly, the unfulfilled prophecies of the Jewish prophets. And we'll deal with those uh, later on in the conference. And some, they would claim that the modern Jewish state does not fulfill any type of prophecy. There's no such prophecy anywhere. It is simply an accident of history. The second view disagrees with the first one. The second view teaches that these prophecies of a final restoration of Israel will someday be literally fulfilled. And so they disagree with the first view on that point. But they go on to say they do not see any relevance of the modern Jewish state in Bible prophecy. And therefore, they agree with the first view in that the modern Jewish state is also an accident of history. It does not fulfill any specific prophecy. And to, to see uh, some of the prophecies they have difficulty with, let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. Deuteronomy, chapter 30. In chapter 29, when Moses wrote chapter 29, it was all prophecy, but this whole chapter has now been fulfilled in the course of Jewish history. He points out when the Jews entered the land of, um, of Canaan, they were fallen to periods of disobedience. They bring down different forms of divine discipline. First would be subjugation fulfilled in the days of the judges. Then came captivity fulfilled by the Assyrian and then the Babylonian captivities. And finally, there'll be a worldwide dispersion which come, will come as the direct result of Israel's rejection of the prophet like unto Moses. And what about him in the same book in chapter 18, verses 15 through 18? Chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. So in the chapter 29, um, the worldwide dispersion is a fact. Now we come to chapter 30, verse 1. It shall come to pass when all these things upon, come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind among all the nations, with the job your God has uh, driven them, uh, the job your God has um, driven you. 
and you shall return unto Jehovah your God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, all your heart and all your soul, that then Jehovah your God shall then turn your captivity and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from all the peoples with whom Jehovah your God has gathered you. And if any of your outcasts be in the outermost parts of the heavens, from thence will Jehovah your God gather you, from thence he will fetch you. And so on to the end of the chapter. And that's the chronological sequence. No matter where the Jews are scattered throughout the world, they'll all come to faith. Only after they come to faith in verses 1 and 2, then in verses 3 and 4, there'll be a worldwide regathering of the Jewish people into the land. And the modern Jewish state does not fit a prophecy like this because the Jewish state largely was, well, as they re- was a um, secular state. And the, all the early leaders of Zionism were secular Jews that were looking not to go back to fulfill prophecy, not to go back for the purpose of worshiping the true God, but to go to a place that Jews can be uh, safe from such anti-Semitism they've experienced in um, Europe for hundreds of years. And so the modern Jewish state does not fit a prophecy like this, and therefore they cannot see any relevance in Bible prophecy. Let's not go to Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27. And look at verse 12. And it shall come to pass in that day, Jehovah will beat off his fruit from the flood of the river unto the brook of Egypt. You shall be gathered one by one, all your children of Israel. Notice he provides both the northern border and the southern border of the promised land. One by one, every Jew will be brought back until they actually possess and settle all of the promised land. This was never true in, in biblical history, nor is it true with Israel's modern history. In verse 13, it shall come to pass in that day the great trumpet shall be blown. They shall come the ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and they the outcast the land of Egypt, and they shall worship Jehovah in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. And he points out the motivation for the Jewish people to return to the land is to worship God at the holy mountain at Jerusalem. But again, this, uh, Zionism has been a very secular movement. And in the early histories of uh, Zionism, the Orthodox community rejected Zionism. My grandfather, who was a Hasidic Jew, rejected Zionism. All his children became Zionists, but uh, he did not. And, um, and only as a result of the events of World War I and World War II did the majority of the Orthodox population finally did except the um, issue of Israel becoming a state, but the earlier days they were opposed to it. And again, the motivation has not been to come to worship the God of Israel. And in more recent surveys, about 80% of the Jewish population in Israel is either atheistic and agnostic. All my relatives in Israel have all chosen to go atheistic. The Zionists, but not religious Zionists, and so the modern Jewish state does not fit a prophecy of this nature either. The third example will be Ezekiel chapter 39. 
Ezekiel chapter 39. The context begins in verse 25. We'll pick up our reading in verse 27. And I brought them back from the peoples, gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, and they shall know that I am Jehovah their God, in that I caused them to go into captivity among all the nations, and have gathered them unto their own land, and I will leave none of them there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, says the Lord Jehovah. Notice two things. In dealing with Israel's final regathering, this will be welcomed by the surrounding nations. Probably from 1948 or so on, the surrounding nations rejected Israel and went to war with Israel. And while two of the Arab states now have made peace with Israel, Jordan and Egypt, there remains somewhat of a cold peace. And so this does not, modern Jewish state simply does not fit the promise of this passage. And secondly, in verse 29, there are five passages, this is only one of them, where it says that God will pour out a spirit upon the house of Israel, as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will enable the nation to come to faith. And this is certainly not true with the secular state that Israel has is at the present time. So again, the second voice looks at these passages, that, and it does not see any possibility of the modern state of Israel fitting into them. So again, they disagree with the uh, first uh, voice that um, the modern Jewish state does not fulfill any prophecy, but they do believe these prophecies will someday be fulfilled, but the modern Jewish state is simply an accident of history. Now the third view says that what we are now seeing is the beginnings of the final restoration. More and more Jews will be coming back for the uh, until all the Jews are back, and somewhere in the process, they're not sure exactly when, but somewhere in the process, there will be a national salvation. So because what we now see is the beginnings of the final restoration, the Jews are now required to return to land. And the elect and emissaries of this view like to travel to messianic circles and messianic congregations telling the Jewish believers, as long as they're living outside the land of Israel, they're still under divine judgment. An emissary of this view came to our, the congregation we planted up in St. Petersburg, Russia. It's a fairly large congregation, about half Jewish and half Gentile. And they came in to tell the Jewish believers, it's nice to believe in Jesus, but that's not enough to save you. Because part of the salvation package is to get up and move to Israel. And so salvation is more based upon where you live and not what you believe. And the congregation I was a member of in, law, in California before moving back to Texas. The um, emissary came to the Messianic congregation I was a member of and telling the Jewish believers they need to get up and go to Israel immediately. That is a biblical requirement. And the elders of the congregation questioned him, asking him for biblical verification of what he is teaching. He took him to Jeremiah 50 and 51 which talks about the Jews returning from Babylonian captivity. 
And they pointed out, he says, Babylon. But his response was, well, when Jeremiah said Babylon, that was just his symbol for the USA. And therefore, he supplied the two American Jews to move back to Israel. When they pointed out and mentions the Euphrates River, he says that when, Mo, when Jeremiah said the Euphrates River, that was just his term for the Mississippi River. <laughs> and that will surprise Jeremiah himself, I'm sure. And, um, but this is the nature of how they interpret the text of scripture to tell people, the Jewish people, they must go back now. <coughs> now what these uh, first three views miss, I might point out one more thing, the third view has raised tons of money to help Jews anywhere to move back to Israel, which by itself is not a bad thing. They also follow a strict policy never to share the gospel with the Jewish people they help. They claim the church has lost its right to share the gospel with the Jewish people. And therefore, we need to do good things. We need to comfort the people, but we should not endeavor to try to share the gospel with them. I'm very helpful that the Gentile person who first shared the gospel with me did not share that uh, obligation. And thanks to her witness, uh, I became a believer. And, but that's the nature of what's happening today. Now, what these um, all three views I mentioned so far have missed is the Bible speaks of two different kinds of worldwide regatherings. First of all, there is a worldwide regathering in unbelief, in preparation for judgment, the judgment of the tribulation, which is the judgment of finally bring Israel to national salvation. Then there'll be a second worldwide regathering in faith, in preparation for blessing, the blessings of the kingdom. The three passages we just read speaks of the second worldwide regathering in faith in preparation for blessing, the blessings of the kingdom. And we can agree that the modern Jewish state does not fulfill the three prophecies we just read. But what the missing is, is another category of prophecies that speak of a different worldwide regathering, one in unbelief in preparation for judgment. Now, we'll say more about the second worldwide regathering on Sunday morning when we discuss Israel in the Messianic Kingdom. But now we're going to focus on the first worldwide regathering in unbelief in preparation for judgment. So at this point, think in terms of 3 plus 1 plus 3. 3 plus 1 plus 3. The first three will look at three other passages that speak of a different kind of a regathering. Then we'll go to plus one, that will add some more knowledge to what we are saying. And then the third plus three will be three other issues relevant to the modern state of Israel in Bible prophecy. Let's begin with the first three, and let's go to Ezekiel chapter 20. Okay, we'll begin in verse uh, 33. As thou live, says the Lord Jehovah, surely with a mighty hand, with not stretched arm, and with wrath poured out, will I be king over you. 
and I'll bring you out from the peoples and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are gathered, where you are scattered, with a mighty hand, with not stretched arm, and with wrath put out, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and they will enter judgment with you face to face. Like as entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will enter judgment with you, says the Lord Jehovah. Now I will cause you to pass under the rod, I'll bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I'll purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me, and I will bring them forth out the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter in the land of Israel, he shall know I am Jehovah. In these verses, Ezekiel draws a simile with the Exodus. At the Exodus under Moses, God brought the entire people of Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. And God's plan and program for Israel in the Sinai was to accomplish two things. First of all, they were to receive the Mosaic law, and secondly, they were then to build the tabernacle through which much of the Torah, much of the uh, law can then be, be carried out. And then with these two things accomplished after about a year, they were to press on and enter into the promised land itself. But when they finally arrived at Kadesh Barnea, which, was, which is an oasis right on the border of the promised land, God entered into judgment with his people. And by means of, and the judgment was they will now have to continue wandering for 40 years until everyone who... Um, came out of Egypt, will die out except for the two righteous spies and those under the, under the age of 20. So then, 40 years later, it was a new nation, a nation that was born as free men in the desert and not as slaves in Egypt. They'll be able to enter land under Joshua. And that historical frame of reference is the background for what God will do in the future. And this time he says he'll begin to regather his people from many peoples, from many parts of the world. A regathering in verses 33 and 34 out of wrath, also a regathering in verses 35 to 38 for a future wrath. And the wrath out of which they were gathered out of is the wrath of the Nazi Holocaust. As a result of the Nazi Holocaust, the stage was set for the reestablishment of Israel in 1948. But also being gathered together for a future time of wrath, a wrath that will cause God to purge out the rebels, and those who survive will be brought into the bond of the covenant in verse 7, uh, 37, the bond of the new covenant. It will be a new nation, a regenerate nation. They'll not be allowed to enter the land under King Messiah. But notice it's a different type of a chronology, a regathering out of uh, an unbelief, in preparation for a time of wrath, but so wrath they'll bring them to national repentance, and then they will finally be able to enter the, the messianic land of Israel. And the chronology here is different than the three first passages we read this uh, evening. Let's skip over to chapter 22. Chapter 22. The focus of chapter 20 was on the land in general, but the focus of chapter 22 be more specifically on the city of Jerusalem. <coughs> and verse 17, And the word of Jehovah came unto me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross unto me, all of them on brass and tin and iron and lead in the midst of the furnace, and they are the dross of silver. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord Jehovah, because you are all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As they gather silver and brass and gold and lead and tin in the midst of the furnace to blow the fire upon it, to melt it, so I gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will lay you there and melt you. Yea, I will gather you and blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and ye shall be melted in the midst thereof, and the silver is melted in the midst of the furnace. So shall you be melted in the midst of the of thereof, and ye shall know that I am Jehovah that put out my wrath upon you. Once again, a regathering in unbelief, focusing now more specifically on Jerusalem, who are filled with the dross of brass and tin and iron and lead. And the purpose of bringing them into this fire of affliction is to cause them to finally these things to be melted and they come to know who the Lord is and they come to saving faith as a nation. And then they will realize the final restoration. But here again we find a regathering unbelief in preparation for a time of judgment, the judgment of the tribulation to bring about the national repentance with national salvation. Now the third passage we'll go to is the minor prophet Zephaniah. The minor prophet Zephaniah. In the first chapter of Zephaniah, he's describing a special time of wrath. Chapter 1, verse 7 to the end of the chapter, which is called the day of Yahweh, the day of Jehovah, the day of the Lord. And this is the most common biblical term. In both testaments, we're now simply called the tribulation. Our most common term today is tribulation, great tribulation, but the most common term biblically is the day of Yahweh or the day of Jehovah or the day of the Lord. In chapter 1, it describes what a terrible time that's going to be. As we come to chapter 2, he describes an event that must precede the coming of the day of the Lord. And verse 1 says, Gather yourselves together, they gather together a nation that hath no shame, before that decree bring forth, before that they pass us the chaff, before the fierce anger of Jehovah come upon you, before the day of Jehovah's anger come upon you. So before there, has, uh, there can be the day of Yahweh, the day of Jehovah, the tribulation arriving, what must happen first is Israel coming together. It's a regathering in unbelief because they are not yet ashamed of their sins. And the purpose of bringing them to the point, the purpose of bringing them into tribulation is to finally for them to recognize that they need to be ashamed of their sins and finally undergo the national salvation. But here too you see a regathering in unbelief in preparation for a special time of judgment that will ultimately bring about Israel's national salvation. Are we on? These are three passages where um, we have a different kind of regathering. Non-belief, followed by judgment, followed by Israel's national salvation before the final regathering. Now for the, this is the first three, let's go to the plus one and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. 
on your outline, this may be already on page two, the, the outlines may differ. Isaiah chapter 11. Let me tell, let me discuss the fourth view. The, fir- the fourth view does recognize the Bible uh, describes two different worldwide regatherings, one in unbelief and one in faith. But then they go on to say this. We cannot be 100% sure that the modern Jewish state fulfills these prophecies we just read about a regathering unbelief. And why not? Because from their perspective, you could have a worldwide regathering of unbelief followed by dispersion, another regard and unbelief followed by dispersion, and yet another one followed by dispersion before you have the specific one that fulfills these prophecies. And that's why they say, well, the two types of regardings, we're not, we cannot be sure the modern Jewish state fulfills the first one. That's exactly what Isaiah will tell us cannot be. Now, the entire context begins in chapter 11, verse 11 through chapter 12, verse 6. 11, 11 chapter 12, verse 6. And he's describing the final worldwide regathering of faith in preparation for the blessings of the Messianic kingdom. And so how is this relevant to our present study about the modern Jewish state? Because as he describes the final worldwide regathering, he also numbers it. Look at verse 11 of uh, chapter 11. It shall come to pass in that day the Lord will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people that shall remain from Assyria and from Egypt and from Patros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinam and from, the, and from Hamat and from the islands of the sea. And he will set up an ensign for the nations who will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the first of Judah from the four corners of the earth. As he's describing the final worldwide regathering faith, he numbers it as the second one. If the last one is the second one, how many more can you have before that one? Even with new math, only one. <laughs> and so, what his point, and the first one is not the return from Babylon, that was simply a migration from one nation, Babylonia, back to another Judea. But here's what he's dealing with two worldwide regatherings. And the first one is the one we see now, Israel in unbelief, and then, in the, and then there'll be the final worldwide regathering we'll discuss more fully on Sunday morning. But Isaiah limits it to only two worldwide regatherings. And now we come to the plus three, three corollary issues, three other issues that are relevant to modern Jewish state and Bible prophecy. And the first issue in your outline is the start of the tribulation. And so now turn to Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, you have the famous prophecy of the 77s, or the 490 period God has decreed over the Jewish people. 
it goes beyond our purpose for tonight to go through every single phrase, and it's not going to deal specifically with what we're dealing with. Uh, but for us involved in Jewish ministry, this is a very important passage to know very well, because it's the only passage that provides a timetable for the first coming of the Messiah. If you do this, if you have done on your own or will do it, here's what you learn. By the time you come to the end of verse 26, 483 years of this 490-year period has been fulfilled in history at the time of the first coming of the Messiah. But there's still seven years left to run of this prophetic time clock of Israel. And now the question is, what will be the event that will trigger the, the, la, the last seven years taken away, which brings us to verse 27, and he shall make a firm covenant with many for one seven. The pronoun he in verse 27 goes back to its nearest antecedent, which is found in verse 26 as the prince that shall come. In other words, the prince that shall come in verse 26 and the he makes a covenant in verse 27 is the one and the same individual. Better known in our circles today is simply the Antichrist. And he uses a different article in verse 26 because he already spoke of him twice before, first in Daniel 7 and again in chapter 8. So this is the third time he has a reference to him. And he points out the last seven years will be triggered by the signing of a seven-year covenant between Israel and the Antichrist. It will not be the rapture itself that will trigger the tribulation. The timing of the rapture we'll discuss tomorrow night. But the event that actually triggers the seven years is the signing of the seven-year covenant between Israel and the Antichrist. Until this covenant is signed, the tribulation cannot begin. This presupposes there'll be two things in place for this to happen, and one is and what is not. What is not yet in place is that the Antichrist has to be in high political authority before the tribulation with whom a sovereign state like Israel could sign a covenant of this nature. And this is not yet in place. Over the years, I've noticed how often American prophecy writers have chosen different presidents to be the Antichrist. The first one I came across is that Ronald Reagan had to be the Antichrist. And why? Because his first name and his middle name and his last name all had six letters. As if God was enamored with the Latin alphabet. And others have been um, voted for the, um, to be the Antichrist. And even um, for a while, so was George Bush. And when George Bush first was elected, there's a lot of fear and trepidation in Israel. And that's because the last time the Jews listened to someone by the name of Bush, they got lost in the desert for 40 years. <laughs> They've gotten over that, and um, they, they viewed the second president, Bush, as one of the best friends Israel has had. Even the previous president... Um, has been, I've been asked if he is the Antichrist. And uh, nobody's, uh, as far as I know, that no one's at this point written about the present president being the Antichrist. I expect somebody eventually to write such a book, and if so, it'll probably be called The Last Trump. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but at this point, we don't know who the Antichrist is. He doesn't have to be a U.S. president. <laughs> he doesn't even have to be an American president. But, um, but there'll be a signing of a seven-year covenant, but the, the first thing required is not yet in place. But the second thing this presupposes is that there is a Jewish state with a Jewish government with whom Israel could sign a covenant of this nature, and this has been true since 1948. So this prophecy required the Jewish state to exist. We now have such a state in the modern state of Israel. Now, the second issue has to do with the preparation for the third temple. Actually, go capital B. The, tent, the third temple and the abomination of desolation. What I want to do is read four passages in sequence and I'll make my comments. And the first passage is coming back here to Daniel 9.27. He shall make a firm covenant with, uh, with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And upon the wing of abomination shall come one that makes desolate and even to the full end and that determined shall that be put out upon the desolate. Let's go to Matthew 24. The second passage is Matthew 24. Verse 15. Matthew 24, verse 15. When therefore you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of to Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then the reads understand, then let them in Judea flee unto the mountains. Now, often I, uh, in the previous presidency, I was often asked as Barak the Antichrist. So my comment, my response was, well, he, may, might, he might fulfill the prophecy of verse 15 about the Obama nation. You've got to think on that one. But no, he's not the Antichrist uh, as such. The third passage would be 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thess chapter 2. Second Thess 2 verse 3. 2 Thess 2 verse 3. Let no man beguile you in any wise, for it will not be except the falling away come first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, he that opposes and exalts himself against all that is called God, all that is worshipped, so that he sits in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God. And the fourth passage is Revelation 11. Revelation 11. Verse 1, there was given me a reed, like unto a rod, and one said, Rise and merge the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. And the court which is outside the temple, leave without the measure it not. For it has been given unto the Gentiles, 
and the holy city shall be tread underfoot forty and two months. All four passages speak about event the Bible calls the abomination of desolation. That event occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation, when the Antichrist will break his seven-year covenant with Israel, take over the Jewish temple, seat himself in it, and um, proclaim himself to be God Almighty, and call upon the world to worship him as God, and to signify the acceptance of his deity by taking his mark of 666. And what the abomination of desolation signals is Satan's last attempt to try to destroy the Jews once and for all, for reasons we'll discuss on, on Sunday night. And uh, this is a mid-tribulational event. How is that relevant to our present study about the modern Jewish state? What all four passages show is that the Jewish temple, the third temple, the tribulation temple, is already standing and functioning at the midpoint of the tribulation. Therefore, it must be rebuilt sometime before the midpoint. That leaves us with two options. It might be rebuilt in the first half of the tribulation, or might be rebuilt even before the tribulation starts. We cannot make it more exact than that, biblically speaking, as far as what the Bible reveals. It'll either be rebuilt at the first half, or maybe rebuilt before the tribulation starts, but by the midpoint, it is standing and functioning. All of that presupposes Israeli sovereignty over the temple compound, and that did not occur in 1948. Israel became a state in 1948, but Jerusalem was divided in two. Israel got to keep the west side of the city, which is the newer part of Jerusalem, but the east side that had the old city, which had the temple compound, fell under Jordanian sovereignty and remained under Jordanian sovereignty for 19 years until 1967. One of the results of the Six-Day War in 1967, only then, that East Jerusalem and the Temple compound fall under Israeli sovereignty. Only then was it even possible to have the Temple rebuilt. And so these passages of prophecies require Israeli sovereignty over the Temple compound. Now they have it. Only, only since 67 did it become a political issue of Israel and remains a political issue of Israel. But that was to be anticipated in light of these prophecies. And so, another way, the modern Jewish state fits within the realm of Bible prophecy. Now, looking under point two, preparations for the third temple, now and then, in, um, rumors break out that the Jews have begun rebuilding the temple. I was in Israel during the Six-Day War. I was then a student at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And... Um, I mean, I, and I finished my studies two months after the Six-Day War. When I came back to USA, I kept hearing all of these rumors that the Jews were importing stone from Bedford, Indiana, for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. I knew it could not be true for several reasons. Now, you only have to spend one or two days in Israel where you learn something very quickly. The last thing Israel needs to import from anywhere is stones and rocks. And, that, and there's a Talmudic statement that, that explains why there's so many rocks and stones in Israel, that God created all of the stones and put them in two bags and gave one back to this angel, one back to that angel. And this angel was told to evenly spread out the rocks around the world. 
And the first angel did that and uh, finished his job. When the second angel went out, he flew of Israel, the bag ripped, and half the stones of the world fell upon the land of Israel. <laughs> and so in case you've been wondering, that's why you see rocks and stone everywhere. Furthermore, even by rabbinic law, any, any stones to be used for rebuilding the temple have must come from the hill country of Judah, which is built upon limestone. And so, these, so at this point, there is no actual construction of the temple building. But three other things are happening that we should notice that are relevant. First of all, there is an institute called the Temple Mount Institute in the Jewish quarter of the old city that has been making all the necessary furnishing that would be inside the temple. And um, when I used to do my five-week study tours of Israel, we always made an appointment with them. And they pretty well finished everything they need. They've got the altar done. They've got the, um, the golden lampstand done. They've got the altar of incense, the altar of sacrifice, the girl of the temple uh, items, even the, uh, the, um, the uh, ribbon they need for the uh, red heifer, not red heifer offering, but the scapegoat offering and things of that nature. So once they can have the temple rebuilt, they can bring all these elements into the temple and begin the temple functioning. A second group called the Aterita Kohani, meaning the crown of the priesthood, these, this is a group that has been choosing other black Jews who are also descendants of Aaron to help to um, uh, be trained into proper sacrificing. Most Jews do not know what tribe they're from, but the one tribe that kept their identity um, I've often asked what, um, what, from, what tribe I'm from. My answer has been uh, that I'm from an ancient uh, Jewish Indian tribe called the Shmohawks. <laughs> if you know Hebrew, you'll get that one. <laughs> but, um, but, but most Jews do not know what tribe they're from, but the one tribe that kept the identity is the tribe of Levi, and Jewish people named Levi, Levine, Levinson, Leventhal, or some form of that name, are from the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites could be priests. Priests have to come from the direct descendancy of Aaron. And Jewish people named Cohen, that could be spelled C-O-H-N, C-O-H-E-N, K-A-H-N, or some form of that name, that's the Hebrew word for priest. And um, so the, um, the tribe in general is identifiable, and the line of priests has have been identifiable. And so certain Kohens that were part of Orthodox Judaism are being trained to do proper sacrifices. So once the temple is built, they've got people that can go right in. And the third issue has to do with the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a common misconception among many believers that before the temple can function, they must find the Ark of the Covenant. But actually, the Ark of the Covenant is not necessary for the temple to function. The second temple stood for six centuries, from 515 B.C. until A.D. 70, and it had no Ark of the Covenant. And furthermore, we read from Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 16, Jeremiah 3.16, that the um, issue of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, that there won't be an Ark of the Covenant in the Millennial Temple. And probably the ark that was built by Moses didn't survive the Babylonian destruction. And the Bible gives us a list of everything the Babylonians took with them into Babylonia. 
the Ark of the Covenant is not mentioned. It probably did not survive their destruction. And they couldn't find the Ark in, for the second temple, and that was only a 70-year break. And now it's been 2,500 years. It's not likely they will find it. And the only ones who are looking for it are Christian groups. No Jewish group is looking for it because they know they don't need it for the temple to function. <laughs> but certain Christians think God needs some help to fulfill his prophecies. And now they're looking for it. And one more thing, what about the ashes of the red heifer? The assumption is that they have to have their previous ashes to mix with the new ones. Again, that's not, uh, uh, that's not actually a reality. And when the time comes, they can simply uh, uh, burn a red heifer and could use the ashes for crops on cleanness. Now, the details of the red heifer offering in the book of Numbers chapter 19, Numbers 19, and basically, is the purpose was to cleanse somebody from ritual uncleanness. And we see ritual cleansing. And the red heifer was not a sacrifice. It was not burned in the temple compound. It was taken outside the temple compound. Until AD 70, it was killed and burned on the Mount of Olives. And uh, so on. And, that's, and then they would use it to mix with water. So if anyone touched a dead body, a dead corpse, he'd be unclean for seven days, and twice during the week of cleansing, he would be sprinkled with water of the ashes of the red heifer. And um, so the assumption is they have to uh, find the ashes of the last red heifer, but that's not accurate. Um, over two, about 25 years ago, there was reports from Israel that they have the red heifer they need. But the red heifer is killed at the age of three, and by then it had about um, uh, 10 mixtures of white hairs and black hairs. And by rabbinic law, it cannot have more than two white hairs or two black hairs. There's a Texan rancher who had several perfect red heifers which he shipped to Israel. You would think that would solve the problem, but it doesn't. Because also by rabbinic law, for the red heifer to be kosher, to become the red heifer offering, you had to, um, the red heifer had to um, be born in the land of Israel. It could not be born in Texas. <laughs> it has to be a Jewish cow, not a, uh, not a Gentile cow. I assume that means it must be a Holstein and not an Angus. So what they've done is they've used some genetic engineering to try to produce this perfect red heifer. So far, they have not been successful, but they will keep trying, and eventually they believe they will be successful. So there are certain things happening right now in reference to the next temple. This is not the way that the modern Jewish state fits within the realm of Bible prophecy. And now for the last thing, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1 through chapter 39, verse 16, describes an allied invasion of Israel. It would not be my purpose to deal with all the details about who these nations are today and things of that nature. 
Now will I deal with the timing of this invasion and in our own circles, there's five different views about the timing of this invasion. I'm only going in so far as this is relevant to the modern Jewish state. There are two passages we want to look at. First of all, chapter 38, and look at verse 8. 38, 8. After many days you shall be visited. In the latter years it shall come into the uh, come into land that is brought back from the sword, that is gathered out of many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste, was brought forth of the peoples, and they shall dwell securely, all of them. And skipping down to verse 12, to take the spoil, to take the prey, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and against the people that are gathered out of the nations that have gotten cattle and goods and dwell in the middle of the earth. The kind of Israel that he's describing in, the, in these two verses is not an Israel that ever existed in ancient times. This is an Israel only of modern times, where a nation has been congregated because they've come back from many peoples, many nations, and the Jewish population in Israel have Jews that come from 90 different countries. Furthermore, they've been building the way cities, so many cities that have been laid desolate really for centuries have been rebuilt and became a Jewish cities that they have become today. And furthermore, they dwell securely. The word securely does not mean the living in peace. The word shalom is not found anywhere in this passage. But this is a people that have come back to Israel, escaping persecution, escaping desolation, and they're dwelling securely, meaning they're living, they're living in, uh, in confidence. It's a Hebrew word also used in the context of war, living confidently. And that fits the modern Jewish state of Israel today. So the kind of Israel that was necessary for this prophecy to be fulfilled is already in place. First, the chapter deals with the invasion of Israel, and the enemies will penetrate Israeli defenses and enter the center of the country. And now look at chapter 39, verse 2. Chapter 39, verse 2. Now I will turn you about and will lead you on and will cause you to um, come from the uttermost parts of the north and I'll bring you upon the mountains of Israel. And then skip down to verse 4. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel. Now the mountains of Israel is the central mountain range that formed the backbone of the land of Israel. It begins at the south end of the Galilee, at the south end of the Jezreel Valley. It runs the whole length of the country, and it peters out just north of Beersheba. In these mountains, you'll find many of the biblical cities, such as Dothan, such as uh, Samaria, also Shechem. You'll find, for example, Bethel, Ai, Jerusalem, Ramah, Hebron, uh, Bethlehem, Debir, many others. And from 1948 to 1967, the mountains of Israel were not under Israeli sovereignty. They're under Jordanian sovereignty. And the border between Israel and Jordan ran at the north end of these mountains, and then the border came down and cut into mountains, cut Jerusalem in two, and came out again, and then came around the south end of the mountains. So in that period of time, from 1948 to 67. Israel had only 5% of the mountains that would extend to the West Jerusalem side, but Jordan had 95% of the mountains. 
And um, another product of the Six-Day War is what is called the West Bank, is what Ezekiel calls the mountains of Israel, fell under Israeli sovereignty. They begin a political issue of Israel to this very day. So this prophecy required Israeli sovereignty over the central mountain range, the mountains of Israel or the West Bank. And now Israel has that sovereignty, and not the way the modern Jewish state is fulfilling the, uh, the, mo the, uh, the prophecies about the modern Jewish state. So as we look at God dealing with the modern Jewish state and fulfilling his word, that should give us encouragement because we, the body of the Messiah, have also been given certain promises. As we see God keeping his promises to the people of Israel, then we can take confidence he will someday give, fulfill his promises to us. Our blessed hope is not looking for the, who the Antichrist is, not looking for the tribulation. Our blessed hope is for him to come in the air and, and then bring us up to him. And that event is our blessed hope, and that event we'll discuss in detail um, tomorrow evening.